Before we get started, uh, let me just start by saying uh, thank you for being with us today. Uh, wherever you are and whoever you're with, we really, really are grateful uh, that you've decided to spend your time with us. I, I would love to ask you to hang around until the very end because we're going to be sharing some really important information at the close of today's broadcast. So I hope you'll hang around until the very end, and I think you'll be glad uh, that you did so. Now today, uh, we're gonna wrap up what we've been talking about for the past couple of weeks, and we've been talking about the thing that we all need in this season that we're all in together. Uh, it's the thing that you need, it's the thing that I need, it's the thing that the world needs. And it's just not in this season, though it is uh, what we need in this season, it's also what we need in every season of our life. And we've been talking about faith, hope, and love. And when we're thinking about faith, hope, and love as Jesus followers, we're also thinking about the fact that when the world needs to see faith, hope, and love, uh, the local church should be the place that they should be able to look and see it uh, because no one should model faith, hope, and love like the local church. So it's something we need. It's also, as the local church, something that we also have to be resolved to show the world, especially uh, right now in the season that we're in. So if you're a guest of ours, uh, we talked a couple of weeks ago about faith. And it's really important for us to know what faith is so that we can actually walk by faith. Here's the definition that we've been working from, and I hope that you have written this down. I hope that you've put it in your Bible. I hope that maybe you put it on a post-it note, you put it into the notes on your phone, but, but this is the definition that we've been working from as it relates to faith. Faith is believing that God is who he says he is. And faith is believing that God will do what he says that he will do. And then here's the operative part. This is the important part. Living my life accordingly that I structure my life around who God is and what God says he will do. That's the framework from which I live my life, make my decisions. That's the basis of my morality. That's the basis of my decision-making. Everything about my life is to center around who God says he is and around what God says he will do. That's what it means to have faith. And when we walk by faith, what that means is that we are all willing to face the reality that is in front of us, all the while trusting that God is who he says he is and that he's gonna do what he says he will do. So when you have faith and I have faith, we begin to believe that what God says about himself is what is most true, that God is good because God says about himself that he is true, that God is gracious, that God is kind, that God is long-suffering, that God is gentle, he's forgiving, he's loving, he's gracious, he's all of those things, not because I think so, but because God, he has said so. He said, these are the things that are true about me. And so I begin to believe that the things that God says are true about him are the things that are actually true about God. And then in addition to that, everything that God has said and everything that God has promised to do, I begin to live my life in the reality of those things. So I face reality while all the while trusting in the reality of God's existence and the certainty of God's promises. That's what it means to walk by faith. And walking by faith, it, it, it has profound practical consequences. Uh, when you and I walk by this type of faith and we have this type of confidence that God is who he says he is, that he's gonna do what he says he's gonna do, when we walk with that type of faith, we begin to believe that God can, that God can do anything, that God can do the impossible. So we, we pray big prayers, we pray impossible prayers. But when we walk by this type of faith, we also know that God may not. God may not answer our prayers the way that we want God to answer our prayers. But the great thing about faith is, faith believes that God can, faith knows that God may not, but faith is confident that either way, 
I'm going to be okay. And that's what it means to walk by faith. And then last week, uh, we talked about the second word. We talked about hope. Because when we walk by faith, we live in hope. Hope is the outcome of faith. Hope is the consequence of faith. It is the inevitable, inescapable consequence of faith. When you have faith, you're also going to have hope. When you walk by faith, you're also going to live in hope. And so last week, uh, we uh, defined hope in, in this particular way. We said hope is the present confidence in a future reality that isn't yet reality. It's our hope that allows us to look beyond what's present. It's our hope that allows us to look beyond this season that we're in and to see that good is on the way. And we believe that good is on the way because we believe that God is who he says he is and that God's gonna do what he says he's gonna do. We believe in a future that is constructed and colored and shaped by the promises of God. That's what it means to live in hope. We believe that we may cry for the night, that weeping may endure for the night, but we believe the promises of God when it says that joy will come in the morning. We face the reality of ashes that may be all around us, but we also live in the hope of the promise of God that says there's gonna be beauty that comes from those ashes. We may live in a reality that feels very dark, but we trust in the promises of God and we hope that on the other side of darkness, we believe with confidence that there's light on the other side of what feels and seems so very dark. Sowing, it's difficult, but we do so because we believe in the promise that there's a harvest on the way. We understand that in life we may have to go through the fire, but we believe that on the other side of the fire, we're going to come out like gold that's been tried and refined in the fire. We know that we're going to suffer in this life, but hope says on the other side of suffering, the glory that is to come is in no way to be compared to the sufferings that now are. We know that we may lose strength, we may be weak, we may be tired, we may be fatigued, but we know that in the midst of our weakness, that Jesus' strength is made perfect. That's what it means to live in hope, that we face the reality of what we're in, but yet we look forward to a future reality that is yet reality, a reality that one day will be, a reality that is shaped by the promises of God. Or as we discussed last week, uh, a hope that says, I'm going to dare to hope despite how things look. I'm going to dare to hope despite how things feel. It was the type of hope that Jeremiah had. He says, I'm going to think about, rather than just thinking about what's in front of me and what's going on around me, I'm going to choose to think about the unending love of God, and I'm going to choose to think about the inexhaustible mercies of God. I'm going to dare to hope. So we've talked about faith, and we've talked about hope, but Today, we're going to take it a little bit further. We're going to end our conversation by talking about the most important thing. Now, faith is important. Hope is important. But love is more important. Matter of fact, love is most important. And that's what we're going to talk about today. And the reason that I say that it's most important, it's not because I think so. It's because I know so. And the reason that I know that love is most important is because Jesus said so. I hope that you have your Bible with you, and if you do, you could open it up to Matthew 22, or maybe you have it on your phone, or maybe you're using the online Bible app on the website right now to follow along. But I hope you're going to follow with us and track with us through some scriptures today, because what we're going to talk about is really the most important thing that we can talk about. In Matthew chapter 22, we find Jesus in the final week of his life. 
Uh, Jesus came into Jerusalem on Sunday riding on a donkey. We call that Palm Sunday. And, you know, the, the crowds were cheering and the crowds were going wild. Uh, but we know that things are going to shift and things are going to change by the end of the week. On Monday and Tuesday of Jesus' last week, uh, we find him in the temple. He's teaching. He's also performing miracles. But on Tuesday, we read about Matthew 22 of how Jesus was asked a question by a lawyer. And it was an incredible question. It was a profound question. And in Matthew chapter 22 at verse 36, Matthew records it this way. He says that the lawyer approached Jesus and said, Teacher, what is the most important commandment in the law of Moses? In other words, Jesus, what is the most important thing to God? Now, I want you to think about this for just a moment because if you believe that God exists, if you believe in the reality of God's existence, it only goes to follow that you would want to know what is the most important thing to this God who exists. Since God exists, we want to know what's most important to him. And so that's what the lawyer was asking. What's the most important thing to God? What's the most important commandment? What's the most important act of obedience to God? When God looks down and he sees me and he sees you and he sees us, what's the most important thing to God about my life? What's the most important thing to God about your life? What's the most important thing that you can do? What's the most important thing you can believe? What's the most important commandment? And so it's a great question. And it's a question that we should all be very interested in. Teacher, which is the most important commandment in the law of Moses? And then in verse 37, it says, Jesus replied, you must love the Lord your God with all of your heart, all of your soul, and all of your mind. In other words, you must love God completely and you must love God supremely. Now, this wasn't new. Uh, this goes all the way back to Deuteronomy chapter 6 at verse 5. As a matter of fact, you could write that down in the margin of your Bible uh, just so that you can take a look at it later. But, but Jesus just reiterates the teaching of Deuteronomy chapter 6 that the greatest thing that you can do, the greatest thing that I can do is to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. To love God completely and to love God supremely. Now, this wasn't new and, and no one gasped when they heard Jesus say that uh, on that particular day. This didn't catch anybody by surprise. But what Jesus said next was quite shocking and what Jesus said next was quite surprising. Jesus goes on in verse 39 and he says, a second, a second commandment is equally important. And I love the way the New Living Translation puts it and that's what I'm reading out of right now. A second commandment is equally important. Love your neighbor as yourself. This second commandment is not less important. This second commandment is equally important to the first one, which is love your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Jesus said, equally important to that is to love your neighbor as yourself. Those things are not out of balance. Those things are completely equal. Jesus said, if you wanna know what the most important thing to God, what the most important thing to God actually is, he says it's to love God and it's to love your neighbor as yourself. There's nothing else that God's more concerned about in your life and in my life than whether or not we love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and we love our neighbor as ourself. Now, this part was not anything new to Jesus' message. Matter of fact, we find this showing up in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus looked at a group of people, you know, in Matthew chapter five, six, and seven, and he looks at them there on the side of the mountain that day, and he sums up his teaching by saying, do for others what you would have others do for you. And when you do this, you're pretty much keeping the law and the prophets. 
You're pretty much keeping the laws of Moses and you're pretty much keeping what the prophets showed up along the way to say to the nation of Israel. That if you are doing for others what you would want them to do for you, then you are obeying the law and the prophets. So this was Jesus's message from the very beginning, even with the Sermon on the Mount. And so Jesus said, if you wanna know what's most important to God, it's to love God and to love your neighbor as yourself. So you love others the way you wanna be loved. You appreciate other people the way that you wanna be appreciated. You forgive other people the way that you yourself wanna be forgiven. You treat people the way that you wanna be treated. You speak to people in a way that you wanna be spoken to. You, you do for things, you do things for people that you would want people to do for you. Now, what's so big of a deal about this and what's so important about this is the fact that Jesus is saying, you should not believe that you love God unless at the same time, in real time, in the same way, you love your neighbor as yourself. He says, don't fool yourself into thinking that you love God if you don't love your neighbor. Don't think that. Don't be fooled by that because at the heart of your relationship with God is also the way that you feel and treat your neighbor. See, we love to think about, you know, our relationship with God as personal as it, as it is that our relationship with God is just about me and God, but Jesus said no. At the heart of your relationship with God, it's just not you and God. It's just not me and God, but it's me, God, and everybody else. He said, that's at the heart of our faith. It's loving God and loving people. That's what faith is all about. It's about loving God and loving people. And so Jesus was saying the greatest act of worship, the greatest act of spirituality, the greatest act of obedience, the greatest act of holiness is to love our neighbor as our self. You can fake loving God, you can go through the motions, you can sing the songs, you can open up a Bible, you, you can pray, you can give, you can fast. Uh, Jesus called the Pharisees out for doing that. You, you can fake a love for God, but it is extremely difficult to fake a love for your neighbor. And so this is what Jesus is getting at. And so what he's saying is the confirmation of our faith in God is our love for people. The confirmation of our faith in God is our love for people. The way that you know you have faith in God is that you love people. The way that you know your faith in God is legitimate is because you love people. And so Jesus goes on in verse 40 and he says, the entire law and all the demands of the prophets are based on these two commandments. He says the entire scope of the law and the entirety of the prophets and their message is summed up in these two commandments which are exactly equal in importance as it relates to God. He says, if you wanna know what the law is like and what the law is about, if you wanna know what the prophets were actually hinting at and getting at, if you wanna know what the take home is for the Old Testament, if you wanna know what the ultimate interpretation and application of both the law and the prophets, what that interpretation and application looks like, he says it's to love God and to love your neighbor as yourself. He says, if you're reading anything in the Old Testament, if you're reading anything in the law of Moses or anything in the prophets and your interpretation and application is anything other than to love your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength and to love your neighbors yourself, Jesus would say your interpretation and your application, it is wrong. Because the greatest expression of faith is love. That's the message of the Old Testament and that is the message of Jesus in the New Testament. And so Jesus says, the entire law and all the demands of the prophets are based on these two commandments. In other words, I would say it this way, 
The thing you need to understand, the thing you need to remember is any act of unlove, any throttling of love, any withholding or restraining of love, it is sin. Because in the end, that's what we all you know, have asked at some point in our life. Is it a sin to blank? Is it a sin to do this? Is it a sin to do that? Is this a sin or not a sin? And Jesus is saying, listen, what you need to understand about what the Old Testament has taught and what I am teaching is this, that any withholding of love from another human being, any restraining of love, throttling of love, any unlove towards another human being is sin. But any expression of love for your neighbor, it's actually a reflection of God. And so Jesus said, this is so important. And this is so important for us in the season that we're in. When we are facing the crisis that we're all in together, when we you know, hear the news and we're hoping for better days and we're trying to, to grow our faith in, in this difficult space that we're all in, we need to remember that any act of unlove, any display of unlove, it's sin. But any expression of love for a neighbor, any neighbor, all neighbors, it is an expression of God himself. And so Jesus, this is what he taught his final week uh, there in the temple on Tuesday. But on Thursday, on Thursday of that same week, we find Jesus preparing to celebrate Passover with his disciples in the upper room. Jesus himself was facing a crisis. Jesus himself was facing death, and not only facing death, but facing a horrific type of death. And so Jesus was in the middle of crisis himself, but on Thursday evening, he wanted to be with his disciples, and so he'd made arrangements to celebrate Passover with them. Now, you can read about this in detail in the Gospel of John chapter 13. And so maybe you'll take a moment and get there. Maybe, you know, uh, flip over there in your online Bible. But in John chapter 13, we find out what happened on Thursday. So we find that Jesus is in an upper room and Jesus is with his disciples, those that he had spent the last three years or so with, those who had been witnesses to his miracles and they had heard his teaching, those who knew Jesus best. And so he's with them and there he is to celebrate Passover. And so listen to what John chapter 13 at verse one, listen to what John said. He said, before the Passover celebration, Jesus knew that his hour had come to leave this world and return to his father. And then I love this, get this. He had loved his disciples during his ministry on earth and now he loved them to the very end. In other words, he loved them to the maximum. He loved them to the uttermost. He never gave up on them. And then here, here's what we love about this particular text once we understand the context of it. Jesus loved them even in the midst of his own personal crisis. Jesus's personal crisis did not give him a pass on withholding love from those around him. Jesus's own personal crisis did not give Jesus a momentary pass on withholding love. So Jesus is in the middle of his crisis, but yet in the middle of his crisis, he still loves them in this very moment. He loves them to the maximum. He loves them to the uttermost. And then listen to what happens beginning in verse three of John chapter 13. It says, Jesus knew that the father had given him authority over everything and that he had come from God and would return to God. 
So Jesus, in the middle of his own crisis, he knows he's about to die. He knows that he's about to go back to the Father. And in the midst of facing his own death and suffering, something shocking happens. Something stunning takes place. Look at verse number four. So he got up from the table. He took off his robe. He wrapped a towel around his waist. And he poured water into the basin. And I imagine that as the disciples were there in the upper room with Jesus that evening, that at this moment they're wondering, what in the world is he about to do? What's going on here? Jesus has got up from the table. Now he's pouring water in a basin. He's taken off his robe. He's wrapped a towel around his waist. And and they think they may know what's about to happen, but it, it doesn't seem hardly appropriate what they think is about to happen. Besides that, it's shocking. It's a bit unexpected. It's unprecedented. It says, so he wrapped a towel around his waist, and in verse 5, and he poured water into a basin. Then he began to wash the disciples' feet, drying them with a towel that he had around him. And so Jesus, he takes a posture of a slave. He takes the posture of a servant. And the most important person in the room, the person in the room who had all the authority, he begins to place himself in the position of the least important person in the room. The person with the most authority in the room positioned himself as the person with the least amount of authority in the room. The person who should have had his feet washed was actually the one washing other people's feet. Now, we gotta think about this for a moment. We we, we shouldn't miss what's actually happening. We, We should just pause, visualize this, imagine this, Don't miss the picture that is presented not only in John chapter 13, but also in the other gospels like Luke, because Luke says in this moment where Jesus begins to do this, the disciples, they've been arguing among themselves about who's the greatest in the kingdom of God. Because remember James and John, they came up to Jesus, you know, and their mom asked, hey, uh, when you come into your kingdom, um, can my boys sit on either side of you, you know, because uh, I'm kind of wanting them to have a good position, you know, when the kingdom comes and And then the other disciples got ticked off about it. And then they started arguing among themselves, you know, who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom of God? Who's going to be the most important in the kingdom of God? And and while they were still arguing about all of this to themselves, Jesus gets up from the table, wraps a towel around his waist, takes off his robe, fills up a basin with water, and he begins to wash their feet. And we don't need to forget that picture because as they're arguing about who's most important, the most important person in the room takes the posture of the least important person in the room. And Jesus begins to wash the feet of his disciples. He washes the feet of Peter, who's going to deny him. Peter is going to deny that he was even friends with Jesus. Peter is going to deny that he even knew Jesus. So here's a guy who, when the going is going to get tough, he's going to pretend like he doesn't even know Jesus. He's not even going to want to be associated with Jesus. But yet Jesus gets down in front of Peter and washes his feet. How stunning. How amazing. What an act of love. What a demonstration of love. And then not only that, but Jesus goes on and he washes the feet of Thomas, who's going to ultimately doubt everything that Jesus ever said and taught. Can you imagine having a friend like that? Can you imagine having a friend that says, you know what, I like you, but I just don't trust really anything that you say. Jesus knew that was gonna be Thomas's story, that 
after the, you know, the cross and after Jesus' death, Thomas is really not going to put any stock in anything that Jesus taught. But yet Jesus washes his feet. And most dramatic of all, there in the upper room on Thursday evening, Jesus washed the feet of Judas, who would betray him. Think about that. Imagine that. That Jesus humbled himself as the most important person in the room, as the person in the room with the most authority, and he washed the feet of the very person who would betray him that night, who would set in motion the events that would lead to his suffering and death. And Jesus washed his feet. In verse number 12, John goes on and says, After washing their feet, he put his robe on again, and he sat down, and he asked them, Do you understand what I was doing? Do you understand what this was all about? Do you understand what you saw just a few moments ago? Do you understand the meaning of it? Do you understand the point that I was making? Do you understand? And I imagine the disciples, they're they're sitting there and they're quiet and they don't even know how to respond. And they think they may understand what the point was, but no one wants to speak up. And then Jesus goes on in verse 13 and says, let me tell you, you call me teacher and Lord and you are right. Because that's what I am. But verse 14. And since I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet. (laughs) This is where Jesus drops it on them. He says, you ought to wash each other's feet. If I am the teacher and Lord, am willing to posture myself to wash your feet. You will never be so important. You will never be so elevated. You will never have so much authority or responsibility or privilege that you yourself should not wash each other's feet. There's no one that you will ever meet despite what they've done or what they're about to do that you shouldn't be willing to wash their feet. He said, this is why I've done this because you ought to wash each other's feet. You're never too good. You're never too sophisticated. You're never gonna be too privileged to wash feet. So every single one of you, despite whatever room you're in, despite whatever group of people you're with, you never have such importance or privilege or authority that you should not be willing to posture yourself and wash people's feet, no matter who those feet are belong to and this was Thursday night and this is Jesus teaching his disciples what love looks like and then listen to what he says in verse 15 he says I've given you an example to follow and here's the example choose humility rather than entitlement even in crisis even at a difficult moment Even when you're facing an unpleasant, unwanted, undesired reality, choose humility, not entitlement, because humility will put you in the posture of thinking about other people. Entitlement always places you in a posture of thinking about yourself. So choose humility so that you think about others. Reject entitlement because you will end up thinking only of yourself. He says, I've given you an example to follow, so do as I have done to you. And then he says in verse 17, 
now that you know these things, now that you know this, now that you've seen this, now that you've experienced this, God will bless you for doing them. What you've seen in me, I want you to live out in your own life. This isn't about feeling a particular way about people. This is just not about thinking a particular way about other people. This is about what you are actually willing to do for other people. And he says, when you choose humility over entitlement, you will be blessed. When you choose humility over entitlement and you think about others rather than thinking about yourself, even in a difficult season that you yourself may be going through, when you choose humility over entitlement, you will be blessed and you will find a satisfaction in life that nothing else can compare to. You will live a life of significance that you can't live any other way than by choosing humility over entitlement. And so Jesus just keeps on driving this point home. He just keeps on making his point over and over again. And then he gets to verse 34 in John chapter 13. And Jesus says some words that many of us have heard before. He says, so now I'm giving you a new commandment. In light of all that you've seen, in light of all that we've talked about. So now I'm giving you a new commandment. Love each other. And then Jesus says what's most important in this particular mandate, in this particular commandment. He says, just as I have loved you, you should, you must love one another. And this was the groundbreaking part. This was the new part. This was the part that elevated Jesus's words beyond just love other people. Jesus said, I want you to love other people the way that I have loved you. What you've seen tonight, what you've seen leading up to this night, what you've seen since you've been with me. I want you to love other people the way that I've loved you. I want you to treat everybody and love everybody as though they have dignity because they do. Everybody has worth. Everybody matters to God and everybody should matter to you. He says, I want you to love people the way that you've seen me love people. Don't ever let your theology don't ever let your doctrine, don't ever let your theology get in the way of you loving somebody. Don't ever let your theology get in the way of you loving people. Because if your theology keeps you from loving people, keeps you from loving certain people, you have bad theology. Jesus said, I want you to love the way that you've seen me love. Love other people without conditions and without exceptions. There's nobody that's out of bounds when it comes to loving them. You love everyone, no matter who, no matter what. You love them because that's what you've seen in me. Love others without any strings attached. That's how I want you to love because that's how you've seen me love other people. Jesus said, this is your mandate. This is my new commandment to you. And then he says in verse 35, your love for one another will prove to the world that you are my disciples. This is how they're going to associate you with me. Not the Bible that you carry, not necessarily the songs that you sing or the buildings that you meet in on Sunday, or at least used to meet in on Sundays. It's not what you do on Sunday morning, and it's not the type of podcast that you listen to. The thing that's going to get people to associate you with Jesus and me with Jesus is how we love each other. That's what he's saying. That if you want to be associated with me, then love other people the way that I have loved you. 
Because apparently Jesus was under the impression that people noticed him because of how he loved people. Even the people that the conventional standards of his day said, you shouldn't love those people. Jesus loved all people. He was willing to wash anyone's feet. Jesus said, when you begin to live like that, people are going to look at you and associate you with me. In other words, I think Jesus is teaching us the greatest version of me, the greatest version of me is when I'm loving everybody around me. That's when I'm at my best. That's when I'm walking in lockstep with Jesus. That the greatest version of me is when I am loving everyone around me and the greatest version of you is when you are loving everyone around you, no matter who they are, no matter what they may have done. That's what love requires of us. That's what the love of Jesus teaches us. Jesus is making the larger point that how we love makes what we believe more believable. How we love each other, how we love other people, especially in the moment of this COVID-19 crisis, how we love people will make what we believe more believable to the people who have yet to believe. And this is why love is such a big deal. It is our greatest responsibility. It is our greatest opportunity and it is our greatest witness. So the question is, what does this look like? What does this look like right now? And I just wanna read you the words of the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. These are words we've all heard. But after the resurrection, Paul unpacks what the love of Jesus looks like. He takes how he had been loved and how others had been loved and he puts it into writing and he teaches us what the love of Jesus looks like in your life and my life. And these are words we've all heard before, but listen to them again. He says, if I could speak all the languages of earth and of angels, but didn't love others, I would only be a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. In other words... If I don't have love, it doesn't matter what I say. If I don't have love, it doesn't matter what I post. If I don't have love, my words just don't matter. He says, if I had the gift of prophecy and if I understood all of God's secret plans and possessed all knowledge, and if I had such faith that I could move mountains but didn't love others, I would be nothing. He says, without love, it doesn't matter what you know. Without love, it doesn't matter what you believe. He says, if I gave everything that I have to the poor and even sacrificed my body so that I could boast about it, but I didn't love others, I would have gained nothing. In other words, without love, it doesn't matter what I give. Without love, it doesn't matter what I sacrifice. He says, love is patient. It's kind. Love is not jealous or boastful or proud or rude. It does not demand its own way. It's not irritable and it keeps no record of being wronged. It does not rejoice about injustice, but rejoices whenever the truth wins out. And then listen to these words because it brings everything that we've been talking about together. Love never gives up. Love never loses faith. It is always hopeful. It always endures through every circumstance. Paul says, where there's love, there's going to be faith. And where there's love, there's going to be hope. And then he closes it out in verse 13. He says, these three things will last forever, faith, hope, and love. And the greatest of these things 
is love. And the message of Jesus and the message of Paul and the message of the New Testament and the message of the scripture could not be more clear. Love is not optional. Love is essential. Love is not optional. It is essential. So what does it look like for us in this season to love our neighbors when we can't be near our neighbors? What does it look like for us to love our neighbors while in distance from our neighbors, while quarantined from our neighbors? What does it look like? Well, let me just give you a few things to think about as we wrap it up. Love is praying for your neighbor. That's what you can do right now is to pray for your neighbor, to pray for all of your neighbors, to pray for those that you know by name and to pray for those that you don't know by name. Love is an opportunity to pray for neighboring states and neighboring cities and neighboring countries. This is an opportunity to show your love, to express your love by prayer, by praying. That's what love requires of us in this season. Love is praying for our neighbors, but not only that, love is being responsible on behalf of our neighbors. So we're gonna continue to listen to the guidance from medical professionals and from our political leaders because Romans 13 says that love does no harm. And in that same chapter, Paul says that we should submit ourselves to the governing authority. So right now, one of the greatest things that you can do to love your neighbor is just, just be responsible to do what you know the good and right thing to do is. Now, that may depend on your job. That may depend on whether you're essential service or not. But you have to figure out what is the most responsible thing that you can do to love your neighbor and love your neighbor. During this season, love is expressing your love for your neighbor. And I know it may not be your deal, but text someone. It may not be you know, your personality, but video yourself and send a message to someone. Write a letter, write an email. And tell someone that you love them. Tell someone that you're praying for them. Tell someone that you know they're in a rough, rough season, but encourage them to know that things are gonna work out. There's good on the horizon. Lots of people have lost things. Lots of people have encountered pain and difficulty. And this is a great opportunity for you to encourage people from the comfort of your own home, on your own device, to express your love for your neighbor in a way that you maybe have never expressed before because that's what love requires of you in this season. I think that love in this season is being sensitive to whatever opportunities we may have to serve other people. And I certainly think that in this season, what love requires of us is generosity. And if you're looking for ways to help, if you're looking for ways to help through your generosity, I would just, conti I would just continue to encourage you to give to and through your local church. We still believe that generosity changes lives. In our church, we have, we have operated in such a way leading up to this uncomfortable season. We have operated in such a way that, that we're ready to serve. We're ready to help. We're ready to be generous to small businesses and to organizations that are helping other people. So when you give to your local church, you can know that our organization, we're strong and we're ready for this. We prepared for this. That's what love requires of us. In this season is to be generous. And we're looking for opportunities every day to be generous and to express generosity because in doing so, to show the love of God to all of our neighbors. Because if we're known for love, 
they will also know us for our faith and for our hope. So in this season, continue to ask yourself, what does love require of me? And as a church, we're gonna continue to ask the question, what does love require of us? Because Jesus said, by this one thing, will they associate you with me? And that's how you love other people. I'm gonna pray for us. So I would love for you to bow your heads, close your eyes if you're with your family, maybe to take your family by the hand or put a hand on a shoulder. And I'm gonna pray for you and I'm gonna pray for us and we're gonna pray for our communities. And, and I want you just to stick around because Pastor Ryan's gonna come and share some important information with us in just a moment. But Heavenly Father, God, in this moment, we pray for the people that we're gathered with. We pray for the people that we're not gathered physically with, but we are gathered digitally with. God, I pray that you would just encourage. God, I pray that our faith will grow stronger in this season, that our relationship with you will grow more personal in this season. I pray that our hope will have never been more real than what it is in this season, that our trust and confidence in your promises are as real as what they've ever been. Father, I pray for our community. I pray for our small businesses. I pray for our economy. I pray for those that are sick. I pray for those who are worried that they may get sick. Lord, I pray for places like New York and California. We continue to pray for Europe and other cities across our country where the numbers seem to be going up. I pray for those on the front lines, medical professionals, both near and far. And I pray for our church. I pray that we would continue to be strong and be in a position where we can be your hands and feet. And I am so grateful that by the grace of God in this moment, in this season, we are. So thank you for your love towards us and help us to understand more than ever in this season what love requires of us. In Jesus' name, amen.